When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 121, The Conquests to Come. I am once again asking you to send your questions for the episode 125 AMA. You can send me any question you have about me, podcasting, history, etc., but I really want your questions about Alexander and the Achaemenids as this phase of history draws to a close. Message me on social media, historyofpersiapodcast.com, or email historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Last time, we explored Alexander the Great's brief moment of rest in 324 BCE after he returned from India. For the first time since becoming king, Alexander was not at war. He instead orchestrated a mass wedding between western noblemen and eastern noblewomen at Susa. He sailed up the Tigris and narrowly avoided another mutiny at Opus. Then Alexander went to Ecbatana, where tragedy befell the lord of all Asia. His closest friend and probable lover, Hephaestion, died, a victim of simple disease. Alexander was thrust into a deep depression and mourning, and when the king emerged, he was ready for war once again. Today, we explore what that war was supposed to be. Every major surviving source from antiquity seems to have a different idea of what Alexander's plans were. For instance, Quintus Curtius Rufus claims that Alexander intended to make a great expedition across the entire northern coast of Africa 
marching all the way from Egypt to Carthage as a punitive expedition because Carthaginian emissaries had helped evacuate the civilians during the Siege of Tyre. Then, Curtius says, Alexander wanted to march from Carthage to the Atlantic, then campaign through the Iberian Peninsula, aka modern Spain and Portugal, before crossing the Tyrrhenian Sea to Italy, and crossing northern Italy to return to Macedon. Diodorus tells a very similar version of the story, though he at least allows that Alexander might have learned something from his experience in Gedrosia. He suggests that this campaign against Carthage would be primarily a naval expedition. In Diodorus' version of events, Alexander also intended to invade and conquer the island of Sicily after taking Carthage, then move on to Iberia and the Straits of Gibraltar. The Roman historian Titus Livius, better known as Livy, was the court historian of Augustus Caesar and he speculated that Alexander also planned to invade the rest of Italy and conquer Rome. These three accounts, Curtius, Diodorus, and Livy, all share an important feature. They lived in or around Italy between the 1st century BC and the 2nd century CE, when Rome was an ascendant superpower in the western Mediterranean and their greatest historical triumph, defeating and conquering Carthage over the course of three wars, was only a few generations behind them. As a result, their views and expectations for Alexander are all skewed in favor of their own little corner of the known world. To them, Rome, Carthage, and the Greek cities of Sicily and southern Italy had long been the most important places outside of Alexander's old domain. As a result, all three of these sources make some leaps in logic. Livy is probably the most egregious of the trio. Despite being a world-class empire in Livy's time, the Romans should count themselves lucky if Alexander even knew that their little city-state existed in the 4th century BCE. He may have heard news about a city called Roma defeating and subjugating the rest of Latium in western Italy when he was a young teen hiding out in Epirus. Even then, Rome was a third-rate power in the Italian peninsula while Macedon was busy subjugating everything they set their eyes on. If Alexander ever aspired to conquer Rome, it was only in the context of a wider campaign against all of Italy. Speaking of that, let's look a little closer at Diodorus and Curtius, because they at least have some merit from the perspective of an Italian in their time. On one hand, Diodorus proposes a scenario that would at least make some sense on paper. Carthage and the Sicilian Greeks, especially Syracuse, were major powers in their time. Carthage had already interacted with Alexander. However, Diodorus's version of Alexander's plan also hinges on the Macedonian Empire constructing 1,000 great warships 
and fighting Carthage and Syracuse, the naval powerhouses of the West. Not only is 1,000 ships, all of which Diodorus says would have been heptoremes, more than twice the size of the standard trireme, a stretch for what the empire could realistically even build, but Alexander did not rule a naval power. To be sure, he had Phoenicians, Egyptians, Athenians, and other Greeks at his disposal with long-standing naval traditions. But neither Macedon nor Persia had ever excelled on the high seas. Diodorus's theory of Alexander's future plans involves a lot of warfare outside the Lord of All Asia's comfort zone, in which Alexander himself would not have been an active participant in what were likely to be deciding battles. It's not really his style. Curtius, by comparison, suggests that a war with Carthage would have been carried out overland and simply accompanied by an expanded navy. This is slightly more plausible for Alexander's personal taste. He was a land general with a seasoned army and two proud land-born military traditions at his back. Once again, he did have some motivation to fight Carthage. However, Curtius is never one for strict understanding of geography, and he just kind of brushes over that this would involve marching through thousands of miles of largely desert terrain, wholly dependent on their supply ships to provide fresh water and food as they went. Never mind the certainty that hostile Amazigh tribes along the way would attack the army and wear them down before they ever reached Carthaginian territory. It's equally ridiculous to Herodotus's claim that Cambyses wanted to attack Carthage 200 years earlier. Curtius's version also lacks the campaign on Sicily, which I think would have been absolutely essential to keeping Alexander's officer corps and home base of support for a westward campaign. Invading Sicily and southern Italy, often called Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece in Latin, would have been sellable to the Greeks and Macedonians as a campaign to unite the Greek world. Just invading Carthage because some ambassadors slighted Alexander personally one time would probably not be as well supported. Both of the Carthaginian theories also emphasize that Alexander planned to invade the Iberian Peninsula and conquer both sides of the Strait of Gibraltar, which they called the Pillars of Hercules. Playing off the frequent comparison between the King of Macedon and the mythological hero that Alex himself liked to make. I'm sure if Alexander ever did make it that far west, he would have wanted to cross between both sides of the pillars just to make the mythical point. But why in the world would he want to campaign in Iberia? By the first century, it was well known that the peninsula had fabulous silver mines that the Romans spent most of a century fighting to control. But this would not have been a motivating factor for Alexander 
300 years earlier. If he wanted to fight Gallic tribes he knew nothing about, there were plenty of them immediately north of Macedon, much closer to home. These two theories also brush past the obvious war elephant in the room, an empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Indus, incorporating all of the most famous cities of Greco-Roman antiquity, is a fun concept to imagine in the hands of the greatest conqueror, long after he had ascended to legendary status. But it is not realistic. Trying to govern something on that size even today would be a challenge. 2,300 years ago, it may as well have been impossible. Just trying to maintain supply lines would have been difficult, but ensuring communication, taxation, prevention of rebellion, etc. would all have been a nightmare. The Achaemenids already struggled with the size of the empire. Diodorus and Curtius, and to a lesser extent Livy, imagined Alexander almost doubling the width of his domain and incorporating many more unsettled peoples. My point with all this is that Alexander going west would have been difficult to accomplish at all, and getting anything worthwhile out of it would have been functionally impossible. He probably thought about it, maybe even aspired to it, but he couldn't actually do it in 323 while the dust was still settling from overtaking the old Persian lands. That said, you may have noticed that several of our usual Alexandrian sources are still unaccounted for. Plutarch simply doesn't address Alexander's plans for the future at all. Arian, though... Well, he presents the most realistic option, and that is what we will discuss after this break. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. 
Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The one thing that all of the sources discussing Alexander's campaign plans in 323 have in common is that they all know that he ordered the satraps of Babylonia and Syria to start felling trees by the hundreds and had the shipyards of the empire working overtime to construct new ships. Of course, most of those shipyards were in the Mediterranean which explains why some of those later authors would have interpreted the contemporary accounts as preparation for a Mediterranean war. However, Arian, also living under Rome but a century or more removed from the Punic Wars than the others, suggests a different, more realistic venture. He says that Nearchus's expedition fleet had come up the Euphrates to Babylon just before Alexander arrived with Hephaestion's funeral. That alone isn't unusual, but Arian also says that two Phoenician kinkareems, three quadrareems, twelve triremes, and about thirty pentaconters had all been transported overland from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates and sailed to Babylon. There's really only one reason that almost 50 warships, including five extremely large ones, would go through the effort of dragging them halfway across Syria and coming to Babylon. Their king had naval ambitions in the south. Arian offers some very dubious claims about ancient Arab paganism that probably have more to do with a specific tribe than any larger truth, and how Alexander thought he deserved to be worshipped as a god by the Arabs. That may have been true, but it certainly wasn't his casus belli. Of course, oil was a few millennia away from being a relevant factor, but... Arab luxury goods were in high demand. Arian specifically notes frankincense, myrrh, and cinnamon. On top of that, Tylos, modern Bahrain, and the ports that would eventually become important to modern Qatar, the UAE, and Oman were all already vital economic centers in the Persian Gulf, just across from Alexander's territory. It's frankly odd that the Achaemenids never occupied these territories. Though technically, there's no proof that they didn't either. The Arab coast of the Gulf is usually not included in Achaemenid studies, save for northeastern Oman as part of the satrapy of Maka. But Achaemenid trade goods certainly passed through the region. 
It may be as simple as these areas being included in the general category of Arabs that historians usually attribute to Northern Arabia in Achaemenid inscriptions. Or perhaps the Achaemenids never bothered to formally enforce control over those ports because they were the only other state in the area. Who else were they going to trade with? Or, maybe, there were other military factors at play, like the ability for most of the locals to withdraw or call on allies from the vast expanse of the Arabian desert. Regardless, Alexander was here now, and he demanded direct control through conquest. In at least one scenario, the one where the Achaemenids had effectively controlled the eastern Arabian coast, to Alexander, this would have been the last phase of his Persian conquest yet to be completed. That could have been a powerful motivator. However, if he wanted to conquer the island strongholds like Tylos and avoid a hazardous march through the desert, this would have to be a seaborne invasion, if only to ferry troops across the Persian Gulf and land in Arab territory. To that end, Alexander began making naval preparations at Babylon. As I said, the satraps of Babylonia and Syria were tasked with felling trees and preparations were made to bring disassembled ships across Syria from the Mediterranean, but Alexander also ordered his engineers to make plans for dredging the Euphrates and building a riverside harbor outside of Babylon, complete with shipyards, to make the empire into a naval power not only in the Persian Gulf, but the Southern Ocean more generally. Under Arian's scenario, if there were ships being deployed in the Mediterranean as Diodorus and Curtius claim, then they were most likely intended to sail down through the Nile Delta and follow the Egyptian canals from the main river across the Sinai and into the Red Sea. If you remember way, way back to episode 27, the second Grand Tour of the Achaemenid Empire episode. Darius the Great had completed construction of a canal system that functioned as an ancient version of the Suez today. The flaw with that design is that the sections closest to the sea relied heavily on saltwater lakes as intermediate points to manage shipping and traffic. This led to the mouth of the canal routinely filling with silt and closing off. Under proper management, that just requires routine maintenance. But I ask you, when was the last time anywhere in Egypt was getting routine maintenance? Let alone the Sinai, right on the border with Asia. Under Darius II, maybe? Earlier? The canal would have to be cleared, and there's no evidence of Alexander personally ordering this, but it's possible that it was in his plan. Much like India, the Europeans of the 4th century BCE didn't really understand just how big a place the Arabian Peninsula was. Obviously, they knew it was wide, 
but only really Nearchus and his crews understood just how far south it went. And none of them knew much about its actual shape. Alexander dispatched three ships to explore the region's coast. One to reconnoiter the Persian Gulf in detail to plan the attack, one to chart the waters, and the last to devise a route from Persia to Egypt for Alexander's ambitions of conquering the whole Arabian region. The captain tasked with that last job gave up after exiting the Persian Gulf and realizing that the coastline was nothing but desert with no sign of curving back to the north anytime soon. I assume Nearchus just said, I told you so. That threw a wrench in any plans Alexander might have had for quickly bringing reinforcements over from Egypt. But hey, at least they knew that was a problem now. He also founded another Alexandria near the mouth of the much smaller Eulias River at the eastern edge of Babylonia to act as a supply depot, forward operating base, and Greek settlement for his veterans. This city would eventually become very important to the region under the modified version of its original name, Carax, capital of Karakine, or the Cherusene. Now, technically, things like building a harbor in Babylon, charting the Arabian coast, and bringing over a few dozen Phoenician warships could all still be reconciled with Diodorus or Curtius's version of the plan. Infrastructure and exploration were just part of having an empire. Even if Alexander intended to attack Carthage, having some sort of presence in the Persian Gulf would just have been smart. However, one thing is very clear in every account. Babylon was absolutely crawling with soldiers and officers from all over the empire by June of 323. Babylon had been used as a staging position for Achaemenid armies in the past, but usually only when there was a battle to be fought nearby. For western campaigns, the armies of the central and eastern empire typically assembled further north, where the major royal roads would allow the northeastern forces to assemble without having to backtrack. There is certainly no reason that generals and satraps from the west would come to Babylon if they were planning to head west again. They would have just gone to the old Achaemenid rallying point at Acre or somewhere in Egypt and waited for Alexander to arrive. Yet, Arian says that Peucestus arrived with 20,000 Persians, and that fresh contingents came from Caria, Lydia, and even Macedon. These were all places on the Mediterranean already. They would not have gone to Babylon if they planned to campaign in the west. Therefore, Alexander's most likely target in 323 was certainly the eastern coast of Arabia and the islands of the Persian Gulf, a body of water that the king felt needed to be incorporated in order to secure the conquest of the former Persian Empire once and for all. 
all of the pieces were in place to set out in the latter half of 323 BCE. Armies had gathered in Babylon. A fleet was in place to ferry them across. The resources and the treasure of Arabia were both nearby and tantalizing. That was Alexander's next great campaign, and it was intended to be the first test of his newly integrated army. The Arabian campaign would have been practical, achievable, and realistic. In fact, it would have made Alexander's borders look quite a lot like those of the Sassanid Persian Empire about a thousand years later, near the end of that monarchy's much later time in power. Had everything gone according to plan, Alexander would have gained some more glory in battle, more riches in trade posts, and probably planned further campaigns on the western side of Arabia to really monopolize all of his coastline. However, if my wording didn't give it away, this war would never come. I'm sure most of you know why, but I certainly don't want to spoil the surprise for anybody who somehow doesn't know what's about to happen. Instead, the next episode will be a step back from narrative, military, or anything like that, to look at Alexander the Great himself and his personal relationships from childhood until this point in the narrative. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune into the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.